and it was just at sunset and we're looking up and we're all standing together in a line and you can just see this massive massive avalanche and it's like you know 200 feet away is what it felt like and there was no question that we could like turn and run away from it because we couldn't move and it came and the next thing we knew we were just get we got hit by the wind and the whole snow cloud of it and we were all just waiting for it to hit us and that would have been that was it that would be the end <laughs> hi friends ski season is just around the corner and i am so excited for it i'm sure you are too but that was hillary nelson she's been called the best mountaineer of her generation notice i didn't say female mountaineer with over 40 expeditions under her belt and a career that spans three decades, with her best accomplishments culminating over 2017 and this season. In her late 40s, as a mom, <laughs> she is officially National Geographic's Adventure of the Year. Yeah. <laughs> Just last year, she returned to Burma to climb an old nemesis called the Peak of Evil, which first defeated her in 2018, or sorry, in 2013. And a few weeks ago, Hillary and her partner became the first people to ski from the summit of Lhotse. She's been someone I look up to for a long time now. As a mother and one of the strongest women I've ever encountered in the mountains, she's kind and humble and truly seems to be peaking in her late 40s, proving that we can truly just keep getting better, even in the midst of many failures. In a world that tends to dispose of female athletes, or really any athletes at a certain age, she is proving the impossible. She's come back from leading failed expeditions and failed marriages alike to keep finding her best self in the mountains, which I can attest to as she has helped me become a more, more efficient tourer. You know, just a little, a few sweet tips of pole holding and things like that can make a really great role model. And she's done that for me. This is showing up. I'm big mountain skier and adventurer, Lindsay Dyer. I started these conversations to inspire the unicorn in you, to embrace your weird, do the thing, even if you suck at it, and fully show up for this one wild and precious life. It's tough times right now, but someone like Hillary can definitely <laughs> lift your spirits. I caught up with her at Mountain Film, the documentary film festival in her hometown of Telluride, Colorado, and this is my conversation with a true badass and inspiration. Thank you, Hillary Nelson, and enjoy the podcast. Okay, so go ahead and introduce yourself, and what's, what would you call your main title right now? Uh, well, uh, I have just changed my name back to my maiden name, so I've gone from Hillary O'Neill to Hillary Nelson just in the last few months, so uh, it's funny when people ask me my name, even that I like trip up on. Uh, right, you've, had, you've been through a lot of changes in yeah, the past Yeah, there's been a lot years. of changes in the past three years. My title is I'm a professional ski mountaineer, but I feel like there's so much more to it than that. So I trip up on that as well sometimes. But yeah, that is the official and mom title and mom. Yep. And adventurer might be a better overall umbrella. Yeah. For what I'm I so do. excited to get into some of the recent stories. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we're in Telluride, your hometown. Yes. What are, what are all the panels you've been, you've had a really big weekend? Yeah. I mean, I didn't have any film. So we're here for Mountain Film. Yep. I mean, I live here, so I've been yep. a part of Mountain Film on and off over for the last, you know, 17, 18 years. And 
a lot of times I'm not here because it's actually also sort of my expedition season. Right. So a lot of times I come home on the Saturday mountain film. But fortunately this year I was here the whole time. So typically you're in in the Himalayas or? Yeah, Himalayas or even South America yeah. or Alaska, whatever. But, um, you know, that, that expedition season is often April through like early June. Yeah. Are you finding that that's shifting now because of um, climate? I don't think it's shifting so much because of climate. It's just, if anything, it's almost like the window you need to a lot more time because mm-hmm. you just don't know what you're going to get mm-hmm. on any yeah, like given so you guys, season. You just came back from Alaska with Kit, and yeah. I know um, the weather was pretty tough. Will you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so we... So is, is the that Arctic in general is like one of my favorite places, and especially the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge because... I went there for the first time in 2010 and it was another incredibly tumultuous and difficult period in my life. And Mm. going there was like uh, just this incredible wild silence and there's a spirit to the place that I can't even explain well. And it just was a huge place for me to heal and so I've always felt really connected to that place and then Kit invited me to go up there again this year and it was a shorter trip this time but we really struggled with weather Mm -hmm. so we only had 10 days that we were supposed to actually be in the refuge and it took us four days to get in there so that cuts your trip down to six days Mm -hmm. which is a really big difference but it was just very um very unseasonable an unseasonably late spring and I think that actually was a little bit contributed to climate change our pilot noted that it was the first time there had never been in his experience I should say there'd never been pack ice formed mm. on sort of the western side of not not quite the Beaufort Sea but as the Beaufort Sea kind of drops down into the Bering Sea there was no pack ice there and so all this crazy weather which you know usually the pack ice is a bit of a weather barrier and keeps those winter storms in check it wasn't there to do that this year and so a lot of those storms came you know barreling across and just created really unsettled late spring interesting do you mind talking a little bit about that first trip and what what you were struggling with and how being in nature helped you heal Yeah, so that first trip, it was in April, May of 2010, and I had a two-year-old and a less-than-one-year-old, and I'd had a really difficult childbirth with my second child in that I lost a ton of blood and he was really sick when he came out and so he spent like a week in the NICU and um, it just took me a really long time to recover and I went right after I had him I went into emergency surgery for two hours and was separated from him and and then as soon as that was over they separated me from him again and he was in the NICU and it was super traumatic and then uh, when he was about seven months old so you know, only three months before I went to the refuge with Kit, I had a really horrible accident guiding, heli-skiing. And it was my first day back guiding after having kids. And one of my clients, she, we were done with the run and we were trying to just cross this really benign river. And she just lost her heel edge and fell backwards and 
it's even crazy to explain, but her head got trapped under an undercut bedrock and she drowned within like a minute. Oh my goodness. And I was the only one there and it really, as you can imagine, really traumatized me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went home to a seven month old and a two year old and my seven month old, because of all the things, he was really colicky and first year of his life, it was a lot of what comes with colic, mm -hmm. you know, crying and just tough wow, sleeping just and all that. So another. it was one thing after another. And I managed, you know, through help of family and friends to be able to break away for this trip and go to Anwar for, you know, it was still only a two week trip, but it was just unbeknownst to me, it was exactly what I needed. And mm. so I was very grateful for that trip. And then just the experience there with just the sheer vastness of it and how that, what that means to me. Like I really love that being a small person, just trying to survive in this big, massive landscape where you don't, you're insignificant and and it's it's simple out there it's just so simple mm -hmm. you're just in the moment and it uh, really all it is about is surviving and not like just surviving in the sense of all you're worried about is shelter water food and staying warm and it's like really simple right and 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 then maybe an objective and <laughs> an objective and the objectives are fun because that right. gives you like this immediate focus and this goal that can purpose and, pr and a purpose mm -hmm. and all of that and um um it just uh, it's fascinating yeah. it's just it's it's funny i always have thought the you get accolades you know from for getting to the top of something you know, right and right. we make these heroes out of mountain climbers uh and not that it isn't difficult but i feel like real life is so much more in the gray zone right there isn't right it's not it's so complicated and there isn't one primary objective to get to the top and then you know you have I, so, so many things that blindside you in life I, I guess for me and it's funny because I've actually never really thought of it this way but expeditions and climbing and trying to summit something and having this objective is like a reflection in this really compressed time frame of life in general and mm. I think that's why it's so what do you mean a reflection of well I think it's um very similar to life but you get it in a compressed time frame and that like I'll go on these expeditions to crazy places and we all set goals for ourselves in life like I knew at a young age that I wanted to have kids and I wanted to get married and I had this utopic version of how all that was going to turn out and it's the same every single time I plan an expedition like mm -hmm. take Myanmar or Burma trip mm -hmm. for example mm -hmm. like this is a place I'd known I'd wanted to go to for 15 years and I had this utopic vision of how we were gonna you know I can visualize we're gonna stand on the summit and mm -hmm. you know high five each other and everything's gonna be awesome and I mean wow it couldn't have turned out differently and we didn't stand on the top and we had this crazy human drama along the way and so many things happened that I never could have imagined. And I feel like that is life. That That's is how life. life is. Yeah. And sometimes in life you stand on the summit and sometimes you don't. And sometimes you stand on the summit, but it doesn't mean what, what you, you thought you it was, thought it was going to mean. <laughs> mm -hmm. And sometimes you don't stand on the summit and you're kind of glad you didn't like it. I don't know. Yeah. So. yeah. I think that's, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Do you want to just get into that Burma story? Yeah, Otherwise, we totally can. I mean, I usually I'd say yeah, like, <laughs> take me back to the beginning and let's, let's yeah, go. I mean, we can't, we might yeah. as well. Um, do you want to go back to the beginning or you want to just talk about Burma? <laughs> well, I, I guess we could get there. 
Yeah. Um, so whichever one works for you. Uh, like you said, you said you always wanted, you always knew that you would do all this. And so maybe we should start at the beginning. I never, I mean, I s- sort of started on this path when I left home to go to college. Where'd you um, grow up? I grew up in Seattle, Washington. And ironically, I grew up much more on the water than in the mountains. I learned how to ski at a young age, but I was like a weekend warrior. I never raced or anything like that. And then most of my outdoor experience was growing up on a boat with my parents and my brother and sister. Like sailing? A powerboat, but like this old wooden boat that my parents fixed up from kind of this broken down uh nothingness to this beautiful they still have it it's like a 1959 chris craft mm-hmm. antique boat that um my yeah, mom was beautiful. a woodworker so they you know just fixed it up and it's a beautiful boat and i take my kids on it now with them but those experiences left a, you know a huge impact on me as i move forward into like what were you, would you well, guys do as a just, family it was just wild you know we'd be on this boat for 6 weeks at a time and you had to figure out how to occupy a small space and how to be patient and how to entertain yourself which has a lot of very similar absolutely um qualities to mountaineering and being stuck in a tent in a storm and live off the land a lot of times through fishing and clamming and getting oysters and all that kind of stuff and you know bears on the bears on the shore and pods of orcas and like there are a lot more the unknown of weather it was just the unknown of weather and it wasn't out on the ocean because you're in the inside passage but it was just huge tides and you know I remember one time we we were fully motoring and hit a rock and like had you know almost sank and oh, had to wow. like make our way back to this one harbor in order to like keep from sinking and just like you know it was just like in that intense, makes so much awesome. sense I've yeah. always wondered how you develop those that skill set uh, like yeah. you said uh, to suffer yeah <laughs> for a yeah. long time and just yeah I mean I could play card games for eight hours at a time mm-hmm. you know as like a seven-year-old and puzzles and I think I mean, you would think that I needed the skills for the athletic side of mountaineering, mm-hmm. but really, I think the it's the mental it's the mental side of it, and um, yeah. So then, you know, I, I went from there. I, I don't know. I always kind of have had a habit of I wouldn't say making not making bad choices, but just making choices that aren't normal, I guess. Not taking the so, easy route. Yeah, like instead of going to the University of Washington, I decided to go to a small college in Colorado. And then right after that, I worked for a few months in Hood River and made some money and then went to Chamonix. And I lived there instead of for a few months, I stayed there for you know, almost six years. Are you fluent in French? I mean, I'm fluent Ish. in talking about <laughs> skiing in French sure. and talking about weather and <laughs> food and things like that but mm-hmm. and a lot of that's faded away because it's kind of a long time ago is that where your first ski mountaineering adventures came from with Chamonix yeah I mean ironically my parents um didn't understand what I did at all but at the same time when I graduated from college they got me a guided trip up Mount Rainier mm. and it was with a friend of mine and I was able to bring my skis and 
that was like really my first experience on a glacier and you know up high and I loved it and then that sort of what was it about that first trip that you were like yeah this is for me um it was Mount Rainier mm-hmm. so it, it, which is in my backyard an of iconic. course mm-hmm. an iconic peak mm-hmm. and I don't know it was just sort of the 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 culture of the people that we were with and like seeing the guides work together and just being out and sleeping out and being in the winter, you know, I mean, it was a three day trip, but it just left an impact on me. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Just learning that you can sleep in, in the snow (laughs) at high elevation and survive and actually be quite comfortable. (laughs) And also like just tying in on a rope Mm -hmm. together and like looking into a crevasse and just being totally blown away. Mm -hmm. And, and then it was only a few months later, maybe six months later, um, I started, I, I started this, our own, my own little company with another girlfriend of mine from college where we had a food stand in Hood River and we sold bento boxes and made food out of our kitchen and we made, we did really well. And then I just took that money and moved to Chamonix with her, but she left after a few months and then I just stayed. Hmm. So when did you make the transition from recreational to getting sponsored and all that? So that was about three years later, so 96 to then in 1999, I had been doing a lot of kind of competitions during that time in Chamonix. What kind of competitions? You know, like the free ride comps. Okay. Some of the first ones where they were only like, sure, I won one year and I got second place the second year in a playing field of like three women Mm -hmm. literally so it's not Mm -hmm. saying that was the birthplace yeah it was totally the birth birthplace like my biggest competition was um jesse james who's jesse davenport you know married (laughs) to chris now but so that first competition yeah i mean it was pretty funny i mean it was you know it was with all all the same all the crazy guys yeah, yeah, that kind yeah. of what went were, on who were the kind of the names that were around um oh my god now i'm totally spacing but like jim morrison was one of them and uh oh gosh was chris davenport there too chris davenport was there i think chris and jesse were already like dating at that point mm-hmm. shane mcconkey and Chamonix was like the mecca it was the mecca uh, like that year 1996 was like the mecca when all sort of the beginning because it was when those competitions started mm-hmm. it was sort of the beginning of all that extreme kind of comp stuff yeah and so I got really into not so much the racing I just got really into climbing like so I guess back up like I wasn't a huge skier growing up but so when I went to Chamonix it was like kind of like eye-opening like how amazing these skiers was, were mm-hmm. and I got to be a good skier but I've never been like this incredible fast hucker skier but so when I did you have the climbing background is that well no and I had no climbing background. oh wow um I learned how to rock climb when I was in college okay and I'd never ice climbed or done anything like that but I had this like endurance suffragine and when I started combining the two of the like suffragine <laughs> and all of that it was like oh like this is for me like I love this like I you can beat everybody up the mountain and then like and I had this sort of like uh precision descent thing so I really liked skiing down hard things that didn't require speed but were super technical that Mm. had you know rope work and 
you know, I'm a, I have a math head and a science head and mm. that all kind of played into the knots and the technician of making these turns and ice and finding a line and a new route and all that kind of stuff. So that's sort of where I found my niche, I guess. That's awesome. Yeah. I've always wondered, you yeah. know, how it all came together. Would you say most uh, ski mountaineers nowadays are more coming from the climbing side or where? No, I mean, I still think most ski mountaineers are probably, that's a tough one. Yeah. yeah. I Would mean, you I say think it feeds in a little both. But it sounds like the, the main thing you need to have is the suffragine from, yeah, from my perspective. Yeah, because... I, I mean, if you truly want to go on a ski trip, you're not going to go on a big ski mountaineering trip because really you're like going uphill 90% of the time right. or carrying your skis on your back. Yeah. And a lot of the times the stuff I ski is... It's not that fun. not that fun. There's a reason like, I'm not a ski mountaineer. Yeah, like it's super <laughs> technical. It so and But you're there, you're on a trip for a month and you ski three days maybe. And what you're skiing is like wind sastrugi at high altitude mm -hmm. and a windstorm. And it's mostly just to get to the next. And, yeah, but there's something that I... That really, it resonates with me and I really love it. And there's something about finding that line in these crazy big mountains, but it's definitely not for like the person who really just wants to go have fun skiing. Well, and you're only relying on yourself and your yeah. team and yeah. it's really just you out there. Yeah. It's super remote and it's that, it's like, there's a huge human dynamic role as part of it and you know, just the survival of it and route finding and all of that stuff I, I love. So, yeah. So tell me a story of, of some of those early times, um, ep epics or, or something you were really proud of or something that ah. was really scary. I mean, most of my early epics were in India probably. And uh, like one trip where I was with Kasha Rigby and it was the second time, my second trip to India, I think. And we were just going to do this this traverse and there were four of us we had like a, an indian guy with us and my boyfriend hansoli barefoos at the time a swiss heli pilot and kasha and myself and we just we got out into this into these mountains and got stuck in this crazy storm it snowed six feet Oh my gosh. And you guys and were in tents? Or? We were in tents and we kept having to move our tents and dig them out and like avalanches were coming down everywhere. It was super intense and we had these huge loads because we were going to do a, this massive traverse. But we ended up not being able to do the traverse and we were just picked the quickest way out. And we <laughs> packed up all of, I mean, Kasha was on tele skis and I remember one time she got so her tips dove so hard into the snow and she fell flat on her face and her pack was so heavy that she, she couldn't, couldn't get, get up. up and it was scary actually and so like we had to come run back uphill and like pull her up by her pack because she was gonna like not asphyxiate. be able to get out of the snow and yeah. asphyxiate whoa which was gnarly and then we had to navigate out this valley and over these I just remember the biggest avalanche debris I'd ever seen in my life you know and this Whoa. was only my second year of ever doing expeditions and then how were you navigating by maps or we we had maps and Hansoli knew the place fairly well because he had flown there with um Himachal Heli which is a ski yeah I've flown yeah there. yeah and they're <laughs> still there um and so he'd flown there a while okay. and he knew that we were going out this it's called the Milana Valley mm -hmm. and and he kind of was a little bit quiet about it. He was like, this is our only way out and we have to go this way, but it's definitely not ideal. And as we started getting lower and we were coming out of the, out of the snow and it starts getting where you have your skis on and your skis off and mm -hmm. 
oh and our stoves broke too so mm. we couldn't make we couldn't melt water we were just we wow. were really hosed in so <laughs> many ways and we start walking through these fields and i'm like god what what, what is this it smells really funny <laughs> and we were walking through these huge hash fields like uh-huh. pot I remember fields seeing basically that too. yeah everywhere and we came out to this tiny little town where if you're at all familiar with the indian caste system the Western white person is mm-hmm. basically as low on the totem pole as possible. We're untouchables. I didn't know that. And that has changed. Why? A lot. Um, just because we're not of the same religion. We. I assume that, that they might assume that you're rich because you're white and Western. Yeah, but in the in the way the caste system is, it's not in a good way. Right. Um, so we came into this village where and I'd never I've, I've, I'd only heard that before I'd never actually seen it in mm-hmm. action usually for the most part people are like oh you know westerners how right. exciting you're like special you're special but right. this was the first time where they were like angry they did wow. not want us to be there I think wow. part of it was because we'd come through all their like uh-huh. fields. secret fields <laughs> yeah and the other part of it was that we were like untouchables and so we had we could only stay in this one place that that housed the occasional Westerner that went through there and nobody would touch us. Wow. We couldn't walk off the paths. If we walked off the paths, they threatened us with being stoned, wow. like actually throwing stones at us. And I, I don't know, the whole thing was just this crazy experience to the point that like Kasha and I threw in the towel in the mountains and ended up going like to Goa and going to the beach and <laughs> running motorcycles. <laughs> why and are we doing out. this? Yeah. Why are we doing this? But, Can um, you talk about that a little bit of like what it was like to to be women proposing trips and and how that was early on? Were there people that you were looking up to or were you guys kind of the pioneers on, uh, on the North Face team? And I mean, we definitely weren't pioneers in the sense of like the first women doing expeditions. But I think when it came to ski mountaineering. Mm-hmm. And doing these all women trips and and getting them and funded, getting and them funded, and you know, uh, and be going to these super remote places like Lebanon and Mongolia mm-hmm. and Kamchatka and Russia and like all, you know all these crazy places. It was really unique. Yeah, and we didn't always know what we were doing or how to do the research or yeah. how to you know get the right food like. I remember one time buying bags and bags of what we thought were couscous and it turned out they were like poppy seeds. And so we ended up having to have dinners of poppy seeds when we were out in the mountains, which is like not good at all and like really (laughs) disgusting and no nutritional value. But, um, you know, so it was a really steep learning curve for us. And I think for who mentored you guys, I mean, did you really just have to figure it out? I mean, Kasha had been doing it before I started and so I learned a lot from her uh I did a lot of trips early on with like Willie Benegas who's part of the Benegas brothers from Mm -hmm. South America and stuff and I did trips with him I mean I kind of I was so passionate about it that I just went on any trip I could go on and went anywhere it would take me with anyone at all you know Mm -hmm. I was much more discerning now than Mm -hmm. I was back then at one point I definitely remember early on being like I need to go on all women's trips because I felt like I couldn't learn when I was the only woman on an all-man trip because I didn't have enough confidence in myself to really like have like my you own were letting place. them 
I make would let, the decisions yeah, yeah. and set the lines and all that. Yeah, and because I didn't know how to read a map well, and mm-hmm. I didn't know how to look at terrain and be like, well, we should go this way. Mm-hmm. And so I found that I did a bunch of trips with Kasha, I keep saying, and Kit and Ingrid Backstrom and different women kind of over and over again. And those... They helped you become more yeah. of in a yeah. leadership role. We just taught, we just communicate differently. We'd sit down and actually look at maps and be like, should we do this? Should we do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, Margaret Wheeler, she's another girl I did a lot of stuff with. And we do you want to talk that about way. that? About like what in your experience is the best scenario as far as a team goes? Uh, I mean, it's not, no longer is it a gender yeah. issue yeah, for me. That's exactly it it my was point. early on when I needed to, I needed that gender specific team in order to learn I learned better in an all group of women Mm -hmm. at that point in my life now it's not gender specific now it's more personality personality Mm -hmm. uh, knowing somebody trusting somebody understanding the objective and what we're trying to do and relating that to people I've climbed with or haven't climbed with but know a lot about and so on and so forth so yeah so, um, are there any other significant stories that you, that like just crazy things like before I mean, my next question is going to be, you know, what, what was that transition like to go from traveling the world saying yes to every trip to, to motherhood. But before you get there, is there any other stories that are worth telling? Yeah. I think one of my favorite stories, cause I've learned this over the year. I mean, over the years about myself, like, a. And, and people tell me this all the time when I come home from a trip and I'm like, I failed. We didn't get to the top. And, you know, people will be like, you didn't fail. That was the craziest adventure I've <laughs> ever heard of. Mm-hmm. And and that slowly over the years sunk in. That just and to be out there. That is just to be out way. there is an amazing thing. And I come home a different person a lot of times. And that feeds back into being a mother and how <laughs> that that's problematic sometimes. But um I realize that a lot of the stories I tell when I come home from these places aren't about standing on the top of something. It's mm-hmm. all the stuff that kind of happened along the way. Mm-hmm. And one of the amazing things was another, it was early on another all women, it was one of my first all women's trips and it was amazingly successful. Like we stood on the summit of all these different things, but along the way we, we were, we did, it was in the Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia and before we went into the mountains and started climbing, we got like a big Sikorsky helicopter that dropped us on top of one of these volcanoes. And I skied down first and I remember hearing all this noise in the background that was weird. It wasn't helicopter noise. It was it was just loud and like growling. And I stopped and I turned around and I looked up and there were these grizzly bears uh-huh. up on the side of this mountain, like just below, like not far from the summit even. And... I noticed one was really big and one was only sort of big. And then there were two babies, two cubs and they were fighting and it was a male and a female and they were fighting. And the other three women in the group, Kasha, Melissa McManus, no, there were five, Victoria and Jesse Davenport Hmm. came down and we were watching these bears basically fight. The male was trying to kill the female's cubs Mm -hmm. and not only for food, but then to get the female to go back into heat and mate with him, Mm -hmm. which sounds like triply cruel and brutal on so many levels. And I don't know, we were just all standing there watching this go down for 
two hours. Whoa. Until he finally got one of the cubs and she managed to run away with the other cub. Oh, and no. it was like all just standing there sobbing, like freaking out watching this happen. And we were, you know, 200 feet away. It was wow. insane. Um, so yeah, that was, that's the thing that sticks wow. out in my head. Yeah. yeah. I can see why. Yeah. It was pretty <laughs> wild. Wow. I'm just loving too that it's a bunch of women. Yeah, <laughs> it was a bunch of women watching, and we were all like pre pre having our own kids, and I think all pre being married, pre everything, just wow. young, you know, and watching this happen and just like what? Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. this is. So y you talked about um, being different when you came home. What, in what ways would you find that you were different? And then also, like you said, what do you mean by it being problematic? Well, I think a lot of times some of these adventures are so far out there. Um, like the Isle of South Georgia, where we were on a boat for, you know, seven days each way over the Scotia Sea and got caught in these crazy storms that almost sunk us yeah. a couple different times. And, and getting, that's just getting to the And that's <laughs> just getting the there and then getting trapped up in the mountains a few different times and the ice and just the extreme nature of it all and... I remember coming home and I couldn't, and this was before kids, but I've done these adventures since having kids. And I mean, I couldn't leave my house for two weeks. I just couldn't go outside. I like just couldn't talk to people. Traumatized or, yeah, or like the culture shock? Both. Mm. Yeah. Pretty traumatized. I couldn't like the space around me of just like vehicles and noise and, and 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 then a lot of it was just traumatized from these windstorms that we got caught in and like I mean we got caught in a, a windstorm that where we had an anemometer that read 140 miles an hour I mean I got picked up off the ground with like a 60 pound pack on my back and thrown like 200 feet through the air just from wind wow so it sounds like you confronted your mortality a few times yes yeah yeah and maybe that's it like sometimes it's funny, I heard Corey Richards talk yesterday, and he said, like, in his brain, when he got caught in this avalanche, he had accepted that he was going to die, and then he didn't die, and then it's like, how do you, how do you recover, come back from make that? Make your brain start reset. working again, and reset to, like, wait, I am alive, I, wait, I, I have to be back and engage and, like, yeah. talk to people again. So, did, have you had those experiences where you thought you were dead, and you accepted that, and yeah, I have. I mean, I wouldn't, yeah, not not tumbling around in an avalanche, but just being in these places or situations with an avalanche coming down on top of me that I've, you know, yeah, I have. So what, what was going through your head, especially hearing, um, you know, Corey's experience? I've heard that story. Yeah. Uh, and we actually did a podcast yesterday, too. Oh, you did? Yeah, okay. and uh, so I got that. So what? how was it different from what you heard him explain in your head I don't I don't know if it was well I, I guess one difference for me is that I've always had an incredible network of friends and family to support me through a lot of things but it's very much an individual struggle and I mean specifically what happened what was your experience or one of them oh one of them well um the first time I went to India to try and climb Papsura, we were uh, all at our original camp at like 14,000 feet. And I hadn't picked the camp. Um, Julia Manega had picked it. 
and so I didn't really, I wasn't totally aware of like our surroundings and where we were. And we got caught in another huge storm, snowed uh, three feet in two hours, and wow. it w- the sun was just setting. And we all heard this. So when I, and I say that because you can't move when there's that much snow around mm-hmm. camp. You can't run. There's nowhere to go because you're just wallowing in snow. Every decision is. Yeah, you're, you're be, stuck. It can and, be life threatening. Yeah. Every yeah. decision. Yeah. And um, we all heard this huge crack and knew it was an avalanche. And we're in this really narrow valley. And it was just at sunset. And we're looking up and we're all standing together in a line. I'm looking up. And you can just see this massive, massive avalanche. And it's like, you know, 200 feet away is what it felt like. You know, I think there was a little bit of trick of light. It was probably, it was much further away than that. Mm. But just coming down huge, you could just see the white as it covered the cliffs and was mm. coming down. And it was massive. And, it, and you know, I, I just remember um, Chris, or was it Anjan, reaching over and putting his hand on a shovel. There was no question that we could, like, turn and run away from it because we couldn't move Mm -hmm. and it came and the next thing we knew we were just get we got hit by the wind Mm -hmm. and the whole snow cloud of it and we were all just waiting for it to hit us yeah and that would have been that was it that would be the end and it just never did so you just got blasted by the wind we got blasted and you know everything goes into a whiteout for a minute and then the whiteout just cleared away and and the avalanche was gone and we were still there and in reality what happened is that julia had picked like the most perfect spot she could have picked and there was this berm in front of us and so when the Mm. avalanche came down it hit this berm and it turned the avalanche (laughs) maybe 50 feet away from us 100 feet away from us wow and yeah I mean and nobody talked I remember Chris Figginshaw just handed me this um flask of whiskey (laughs) (laughs) we all finished the entire flask and then went to bed and like didn't really talk about it but you all had trauma from that. I mean, I definitely did. It mm-hmm. was intense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, you know, Chris and I went back there last year and took a different approach. So we weren't in that spot again. But mm-hmm. like it was definitely uh, something we talked about. Yeah. So how have you found ways to cope? Or do you just not? I think I think something that, that Corey said was that you just... you. As, as much work as you can do, therapy and whatnot, you, you just, it's still there. And every yeah. time he hears a rumble or, or a thunder or, <laughs> or the rumble yeah. of a car, it, it does come back regardless of how much recovering you can do. Right. I mean, I think back to the death of the client just heli-skiing in sure. my backyard. And every day I, went, I had to go to the fire department here in Telluride. Her body was in there and her fiance her boyfriend Mm. who was going to ask her to marry him that day no yes he was in there and I had to tell him what happened and that place that place is a point of trauma for me and I had to go home that day I was still breastfeeding Um, my milk dried up I basically was convinced I was feeding my child poison at that point and within like five minutes of coming home like my friend who had her own baby she had to leave and I was left alone with my kids and I and you know I my husband wasn't there and I, I just still to this day it's like super traumatic and then every single day for five years I had to bike back twice a day in front of that fire department 
um, to take my kids to school or preschool or whatever it was. And so it was just this constant, like, I mean, and I still do to this day, go by it all all the time. And I, I think of it every single time. Wow. So, I mean, I'm like starting to grip the microphone really hard. I mean, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, and that was in my backyard. So it's, it's such a hard thing to explain because I wouldn't take away any of those traumas because I like who I am today and I'm who I am today because of everything that's happened to me in my life. And you haven't stopped doing what you love. And I haven't stopped doing what I love because it's who you are. It's just who I am and I'm passionate about it. And I'm finally seeing in my kids their like understanding of who I am as their mother. And I do my best to just kind of accept those risks. Yeah. I don't know. But they're, you know, it's hard to communicate it to other people and it's, and it doesn't always want to talk about it. And it's, it doesn't necessarily get healed. There isn't. It doesn't necessarily get healed, but I mean, I don't think there's one person walking this planet who has not suffered something traumatic and had to figure out how to just go through life. How to keep living. How to keep living. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's light. That is light. Yep. So. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So how, how was it to make, I, I can't even say transition, but to, to go from being able to follow the wind and, to becoming a mom honestly it was terrifying for me actually because I have always known I'm not somebody who can follow a schedule like I just I physically cannot have a consistent day-to-day pattern in my life like it's just not (laughs) and that's like what kids need right and that's That's what kids need they need to have their nap from you know, one it's all about schedules. That's what you it's hear all about right? schedules. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I guess I just had to figure out how to, how to be that person. And it was hard and not to lose yourself that, and yeah. not to lose myself in it. And I did not do it perfectly. I, um, made a lot of mistakes along the way. And, um, I mean, it just, it just was really hard. Yeah. It was really hard for me. And, but the funny thing is, is like every day I felt like I was failing at something, but so I think every parent, every mother feels that way. The other thing that was really unique and sort of unexpected for me and becoming a mother was the, the guilt I had associated with it. Like, like paralyzing guilt. Like, why am I this person who is okay with leaving my kids to go climb a mountain? Like, what is wrong with me? What Mm. is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? And, um, I don't know, Uh, you know, and I, and I get, have a lot of like, even though men have been doing it for years, even though men have been doing it for years. Um, I think we're just connected differently to our children when they're very young. Mm -hmm. I think as they get older, the father connection and the mother connection, become much more similar but when they're very young uh, the mother's just connected in a different way yeah you just can't Um, leave you just yeah and yet here I was like I left my first son when he was 10 months old and went to Pakistan to climb an 8,000 meter peak for two months like what is wrong with me (laughs) (laughs) but 
at the same time now flash forward 10 years and I see who my kids are and how healthy they are and happy and confident and independent little beings that they are and you know it's good it's all it's all okay we just do our best in this world and we raise our kids the way and do you think that the way the best way we can you have been the best mother you can be because you didn't lose yourself and by being happy yeah I mean the irony though is going on these expeditions doesn't necessarily make me happy oh it makes me that it, it just it makes me complicated sometimes it makes me very emotional they're 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 like incredible highs and lows that go along Mm -hmm. with these expeditions like the trauma of leaving my kids and then the exhilaration and the the adrenaline from being on expeditions but then they're not successful and then I'm really hard on myself if we if I spent this time away from my kids it's not like vacation it's not like (laughs) vacation they're Mm -hmm. intense but again that just goes back to like that's what makes me me Mm -hmm. and it's not being happy I'm not meant to like have this you know perfect rainbow with a pot of gold at the end and be happy every day like I I like the tumultuousness of my emotions and the 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 roughness of some of my experiences and And the challenge of figuring it out the challenge of figuring it out and the 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 defeat of not always figuring it out and um, pushing myself and finding out what my physical and mental boundaries are and I think that is not always related to happiness but it's more fulfillment Um, thank you that was beautiful that you nailed it and and it's part of who you are yeah Yeah. I could go on for hours and hours (laughs) (laughs) so I'd love to do it again sometime but thank you so much yeah thanks that was yeah sometimes I dive in there too deep no it was absolutely awesome Um, good luck with with I mean what's next right now you just had uh, really quick you've had such an awesome a couple years of of really getting back out there and what are you been great I've been able to like tick off some things that I really have been obsessed with for years and it's good and I just got back from the Arctic which isn't like hard climbing or scary it's just remote and it's beautiful and it's wild and so that was an awesome trip and and I'm hoping I'll go back to the Himalayas in the fall and I don't I don't know well, thank you for being a pioneer. Yeah. Thank you for being someone to look up to. Yeah. Um, leading, leading the way. It's not always um, picture perfect, like you said, but yeah. you're, you're, you're staying true. You're still yeah. doing it. Yeah, I'm still doing it. I'll babysit. No, for better or worse. I'll come hang out. <laughs> okay, sweet. All right, thanks. <laughs> thanks so much for listening, friends. I hope this lightened your spirits today. If you enjoyed the conversation, give us a review on iTunes. Spread the word and be sure to subscribe. Until next time, see you in the mountains, unicorns.